There have been some stunning developments in the war in Ukraine over the last couple of weeks. After a rapid counteroffensive, Ukrainian forces recaptured huge swathes of land in the country's northeast that had been taken by Russia just a few months earlier. And with this came concerning revelations again about another mass grave, this time in the city of Izium. It's all become a bit of a headache for Vladimir Putin, who's facing growing criticism both at home and abroad, while the fighting inches ever closer to Russia's own borders. So has the war reached a turning point and where might it head from here? Joining us for their analysis today are Dr. Nicholas Gavozdev, a Russian-American international relations scholar and professor of national security studies at the US Naval War College, and Mary Ilyushna, a Russia reporter for the Washington Post. Welcome to you both. Nick, can you just start by giving us a quick overview of that remarkable Ukrainian offensive in the northeast of the country? Describe for us briefly what happened. Well, it's the first time since the Russian invasion that the Ukrainians have not only uh, been able to stay on the defensive, but actually go back on the offensive. They probed, they found weaknesses in the Russian lines. Uh, They were able to exploit the fact that the Russians are overstretched. And most importantly for Ukraine's partners in the West, the Ukrainians demonstrated that they can actually make very good use of the security assistance that has been coming into the country since February. They found the weak points, they attacked, they pushed them back, and it also revealed to an extent uh, that Russia and the Russian forces, uh, not only are they overstretched, but there's also a question of motivation. Uh, It's well enough uh, when you think you're winning Uh, to hold the line. But if you are now faced with a force that has the prospect of inflicting a defeat on you, uh, are you going to stand and hold or are you going to withdraw? And some of what we saw was not just simply the Ukrainians pushing forward, but also of Russian forces uh, cutting and running or withdrawing uh, away from the front lines, which raises questions about the ability of the Russians to sustain this campaign Uh, should the Ukrainians uh, be able to duplicate what they've done in the Kharkiv area in other parts of Ukraine? Um, As you say, there do seem to be long-standing problems with Russia's forces kind of coming to the surface. Mary, can you tell us more about where Russia's fighters have been coming from and some of the problems they've been facing? Sure. So Russia sent some of its regular forces because this is considered as a special military operation and it doesn't involve, for example, the conscripted soldiers that are have, have mandatory service of one year. But also Russia faced shortages in manpower from really early on because they have been suffering huge losses even in March, so way in the beginning of the campaign. And they've engaged into something that's called shadow mobilization. So they avoided calling for a general draft because that would be hugely unpopular among Russians uh, because that means, you know, regular people who really don't even want to have to do anything with this war would have to go and fight, which is be very problematic for the Kremlin. So instead, they've been they've launched this really wide um, recruitment campaign, offering really big salaries, plastering all these you know advertisement posters, banners all over Russian cities. Um, they've involved um, private mercenary companies, which you know mercenary service is outlawed in Russia, but it is sort of an open secret that it exists and that is thriving, as we can see. Um, and they've allowed one of the leaders of uh, of a private military company, Prigozhin, Evgeny Prigozhin, who runs the Wagner Group, to go to prisons and recruit convicts to join the fighting in Ukraine. 
thing. So there's several, you know, efforts to bring people in without officially saying that Russia is at war now. And that has been going on with a very sort of varying degree of success. That was an extraordinary video that I know you wrote about, about that visit to the to the prison and the talk that was, you know, in a very stage-managed way being given to all the prisoners where they were being promised that, you know, if they went to the front line and did their best for 12 months, then they'd all get to go home. And, uh, of course, if they die, they die. But maybe it's a better option. And they had, I think, five minutes to decide whether or not to join the campaign. Yes, that's correct. That video is extraordinary. I mean, on so many levels, uh, just some of the bits that Jagosian's been telling those prisoners is that, you know, if you um, go to the front line with us and on the day one you say this is not for you and you want to sort of back out, we will shoot you. So he has apparently a license to just get rid of these people without any, you know, this is against like any particular judicial you know, there's no legal mechanism that allows to do that. But he says, like, look, I'll get rid of you if you don't play by the rules. Um, and he's also, you know, offering them, you know, I think it was a six months contract and again, like big salary. Um, he was describing them, you know, which what kind of people he's looking for. And he's looking for the most like brazen and brave and violent people who are not scared of killing or dying. Um and apparently that effort has been quite successful because one of the um, human rights organizations that is looking into this has estimated that between seven and 10,000 people have been recruited because the conditions in Russian prison is also, it's a really, you know, violent and, and scary place. So for a lot of people, that doesn't seem like the worst deal to get out and potentially die than stay in the Russian prison. Mary, just reflecting on the the Russian counter, sorry, the Ukrainian counteroffensive and the success of that. What can you tell us about the reaction within Russia to these developments, to the extent that they're known? I mean, you you say that it sent the typically, I think you called it the unanimous choir of pro Kremlin and state state propagandist voices into disarray. Where where could you see that? Well, that is stunning in terms of it was quite public because even. Uh, you know, Russia enjoys multiple hours of TV programming where it's just pundits yelling at each other and, you know, complaining about Ukraine and the West. And it's usually very unanimous in terms of it's anti-Western and Russia is winning and Russia is great. This counteroffensive brought like a lot of chaos to that narrative because um, for some people, like they couldn't understand why Russia is still calling a special military operation, why it doesn't say it's a war, why it's not mobilizing, because it's clearly not winning. Um, and that goes against the narrative that they have been talking about for months. So they want more aggression from the Kremlin. They want more, um, you know, be tougher. They want Putin to be even tougher than he is now. But there's another group that says, look, this is a bad idea altogether. We should just stop doing this. You know, we should either admit that this is a war and go full out or just try to negotiate peace and leave as we are right now. So to hear that, you know, on Russian state TV is incredible because it's usually very, you know, according to the party line and there's no like step to the left or the right. So that was quite interesting. And also, and a brewing understanding in, in in the cities that are near Ukraine, that border Ukraine, 
the door is coming much closer to them and they're really nervous about this and they want some sort of help from the Kremlin, from the center. And it's not clear whether that's going to happen. So there are a lot of kind of discontent growing in different areas and groups. And not only within Russia. I mean, we also saw, Mary, some really interesting reactions on the international stage over the weekend, didn't we? Oh, yes. Um, uh, yeah, Vladimir Putin, um, last week he went to um, Uzbekistan for this uh, Shanghai uh, Cooperation Organization meeting, which um, it's basically Russia, China and some Central Asian countries. And he, over the course of the past months, has been saying, like, look, this notion that Russia is an international pariah because of the war is not true because we're supported by like billions of people in like India and China and, and all over the world. Um, but that proved not necessarily be true because when he met face to face with the leaders of India and China, they told him that they are very concerned about this war. And uh, the most stunning sort of public rebuke was from the Indian Prime Minister Modi, who said, this is not the time for war. And like he said, I've told you this many times. And um, he basically publicly criticized Putin for that. And we have to understand that China and Russia, India and Russia are usually quite friendly and they're very dependent on each other economically. Russia has been selling um, arms to India. China is its you know main sort of hope that it's going to become this main big uh, economic partner because Russia is um, facing, you know, it's under a lot of sanctions. So it's hoping that China will help it out. But it seems like it's not willing to do that because, you know, the war made Russia so toxic. So, Nick, as we're hearing there, you know, Putin obviously under increasingly pressure at home and abroad. What what are his options going forward? There's again been some speculation in recent days about whether he might resort to nuclear weapons as things look more desperate. But in real terms, how likely do you think that would be? At this point, uh, the risk of nuclear escalation, including the use of tactical weapons, is still very low. Uh, The taboo against using such weapons, the type of response it would bring, uh, the risk that it would bring uh, countries that right now are just simply aiding Ukraine more actively into the, the fight against Russia, I think is something that it's just not worth it. Uh, now, uh, as Maria noted, that uh, as you start to have Russian cities under threat, or if there's a if there is an appearance that uh, Ukraine, uh, backed by Western support, is able to strike directly into Russia, that would change the equation. But uh, as we've seen, the 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 Biden administration still uh, is trying to to balance that. You know the the requirement of helping Ukraine with not also providing uh, the types of military equipment uh, which would help Ukraine or would give Ukraine the ca- capacity to strike into deep into Russian territory. So I think right now the nuclear risk is is still is still quite low. What we are dealing with though, and the unknowns as we move forward, is uh, can Ukraine sustain this counteroffensive? Uh, right now, what it appears in in the Kharkiv area that we're beginning to move uh, into uh, a stalemate again. That the Ukrainian offensive has more or less stopped. Uh, that the the Russian defense lines are are firming up. Uh, what whether or not Ukraine can launch these types of offensives again in the south against Kherson, uh, further south in the Lugansk area. Uh, remains uh, remains to be seen. So if we're back to the, uh, some degree of stalemate, then the question is, what do you do to break that? India, China, Turkey under uh, President Erdogan have all been urging that this is the time to restart diplomacy. 
uh, it's time to start talking. Uh, Turkey, of course, brokered the grain deal, which is enabling Ukrainian grain uh, to reach international markets through the Black Sea. Uh, would you have an effort to, uh, in essence, say uh, the Russian effort uh, in Ukraine has failed and now we, we have a ceasefire and we try to, to dial things back? Uh, but at this point, the Ukrainians, having had the momentum of a successful counteroffensive, uh, may say, look, we're not willing to talk until not just simply the territory occupied since February, but all territory occupied by Russia since 2014 must be evacuated and returned to Ukrainian control before we talk. Uh, and that may lead Russia to uh, decide to, to, to kind of draw hold the line, hope that these new recruitment efforts give it enough force to, to, to control what they've seized. And then, of course, the Russians are still counting on winter. They're counting on the, the massive economic disruption uh, that has already been caused by this decoupling of Europe uh, from Russian energy and Russian commodities uh, to really have an impact on the willingness of European allies in particular to sustain the campaign in Ukraine. And so the thinking is for Russia is maybe if we just hang on through the winter, uh, Ukraine doesn't get more military assistance. And then we revisit in the spring uh, our ability to, to once again pressure uh, Kiev into uh, either making concessions or, uh, or for Russia to, to gain recontrol of the territory uh, that it's lost. So uh, right now we have a bunch of different calculations at work. Uh, can the Ukrainians, uh, with Western help, inflict enough damage on the Russians uh, to, to raise the costs unacceptably for the Kremlin? Will China and India and other partners of Russia increase their pressure for a settlement? Or can the Kremlin calculate that it can hold on and wait for high energy prices in Europe uh, to work uh, a degree of disruption uh, that changes the calculus? Nick, we might come back to that question of kind of con continued sustained support from the West. But Mary, have you seen any indications in Russian media of of what the plan might be to regain Russia's footing in Ukraine? Are, are there any kind of serious uh, strategic plans being shared at this point? I mean, I know that there's been, as you mentioned earlier, talk about, you know, calls at least for general mobilisation. That, that's not sustainable, is it, in terms of you know, the, the Russian um, public. It's not sustainable in terms of Russian public. It also, um, a lot of the um, sort of military correspondents and reporters who have gained quite a bit of publicity over the course of the war and are influencing this kind of thinking about the war, saying this is not going to be useful because there is no motivation among general Russian public to go fight and die in Ukraine because they don't, um, you know, they don't really buy into this narrative that this is a war of survival for Russia. That's something that the Kremlin has been saying. Um, so in terms of strategic planning, there's not much going on because a lot of the concerns um, about this counteroffensive that they sort of lost and, and did, were not able to repel in any way is that there is generally a lack of strategy and planning. And what we've been sort of reporting on, you know, thanks to a lot of the like military experts, um, in, both in Russia and abroad, is that uh, because Russia had so many losses throughout the campaign, they had to sort of swap people between units that really disrupted the chain of command. So it's really, really difficult to say 
now that Russia has some sort of, you know, united force. Um, and that is something where a lot of problems are sort of coming from. So there's really no clear picture of what they're going to, going to do. Um, so far, you know, the Kremlin again said that they're not willing to do general mobilization, which is kind of expected. Um, there were some um, calls for self-mobilization from the regions, uh, um, from some leaders of Russian regions, like the ones who are bordering Ukraine, from the Chechen leader Ramzan Kadyrov, who urged um, every region to send at least a thousand of fighters. And there are eighty-five regions in Russia, so he says, "Look, this this will already give you eighty-five thousand um, people to fight with." So some have supported that, but whether that's going to then turn into this kind of, you know, there's this joke in Russia, it's like mandatory. Uh, voluntary, voluntary mandatory uh, things. So, like whether that's going to become something that is presented as volunteer force, but it's actually forcibly conscripted people. Mary, I mean, you've also been reporting over the weekend about strikes into Russia's border towns. I guess suddenly it becomes much harder for the Kremlin to control the narrative of the war when the war is actually inside Russia's borders, on on the edges of its region. Yes, and there's been a lot of, especially in Belgrade region, which is a really big staging area for the Kharkiv attack, um, because so many people retreated back to uh, Belgrade and Belgrade border. They're now seeing all these soldiers coming out of Ukraine and saying, like, what happened there and how, like, we're not doing great, that we're losing. And then, um, you know, again, the winter is approaching and, you know, you could see all these soldiers by um, gear and equipment in Belgrade because they don't have anything of their own, um, like warm clothes and some like gloves and, 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 and goggles and all these kind of things. Um, so they, you know, start to understand that this is not um, something that is far away or limited in any way, that this is actually a real conflict that is literally a couple of miles away from them. Um, and they have been, you know, calling on the regional authorities to like cancel school classes in like border towns. There has been some evacuations because some of the buildings have been destroyed. There have been several casualties um, because very often in Belgrade, especially overnight, you can see like drone strikes or um, anti-missile. Um, uh, systems working because they're either repelling what is coming from Ukraine or, you know, there have been sort of talk that some of what is falling on Belgrade is actually a Russian fire, just did not, you know, aim correctly. Um, so there are a lot of concern, especially in that area, that, you know, this might spill over and they're not really ready for that. They don't want war to come home. Nick, just finally, uh, I mean, we talked about the, the counteroffensive successes and how, in a way, it was the Ukrainian troops really for the first time showing how effective they can be with the weaponry that they've been supplied by the West. Does that mean now that potentially it's boosted the case for a step up in Western support and that a well, Ukrainian victory might ultimately be guaranteed by that kind of continued support from the West? The real question here is not whether or not there'll be continued shipments, but at what level. And one of the things you're starting to see some concern expressed is, is Ukraine taking away weapon stocks that might be needed if there's a crisis, say, over Taiwan? You're starting to see this discussion in the United States in particular of how much can we get our defense industries geared up uh, to feed Ukrainian needs without potentially creating security problems elsewhere uh, in the world should there be a contingency problem over Taiwan uh, or a crisis somewhere else uh, in the world. And I think what you're, the, and this then links back to this question of what are the ultimate aims? 
that the West wants? Is it just simply to help Ukraine return to the pre-February status quo? Is it to help Ukraine regain control over Donbass and Crimea? Is it to help Ukraine be able to significantly change the balance of power uh, vis-a-vis Russia? Because each of those options gets more expensive, gets more uh, in-depth. And the question of is the willingness of the West uh, to support each of those options. And again, right now, in looking at how the the Russians have reacted to the counteroffensive, you have some people saying we can we can do a lot more, or Ukraine can do a lot more with what's already being provided. But at the same time, you're seeing the Ukrainian defense ministry saying we're very happy for all the support we've gotten, but we really could use now systems like Patriot anti-missile systems, uh, more advanced fighter aircraft, uh, longer range munitions. And I think the debate we're going to see in the West, in Europe, the United States, and other allies is again to calibrate the level of support that will be given to Ukraine uh, versus having things ready for for dealing with other contingencies. Nick and Mary, thank you both for bringing us up to date so artfully today. That's Dr. Nicholas Gvozdev, a Russian-American international relations scholar and professor of national security studies at the U.S. Naval War College, and Mary Ilyushina. She's a journalist covering Russia for the Washington Post. G'day, potties. If you like discussions that get beyond the headlines and help you make sense of the big trends in business and politics, check out uh, Saturday Extra with my colleague Geraldine Doog on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> 